For those uh, that will be listening at a later date, I will say welcome to Lemons with Lemonade, dealing with sour people in the church. I wish I were creative enough to come up with that title, but I wasn't. I asked one of my creative friends, so it's good to have creative friends. Uh, And this is the 1140 session. My name is Sarah House, and I serve at our network office as the church multiplication coordinator. So essentially, we have a church multiplication director who goes out and recruits all of our planters and and does the, the relational side of that, uh, that particular department. And then uh, once they come in through the gate with the application, I take it from there and I do all of the logistics and uh, help with their funding and things like that. Um, and then I also serve in the student ministries department just as an administrative help. I've been there for quite a few years. It's a great place to work. I feel so blessed. Every day I go to work to work among amazing people and in a Christian environment. Uh, my husband does not. He... Uh, he's a bivocational pastor, so that part's a Christian environment, just for the record. Um, the other side, uh, he works uh, for a company, and he comes home with all these crazy stories, and I'm always just so grateful that I don't have to deal in that kind of hostility and, and um, sarcasm and, and things like that. So uh, we get our, our fair share uh, at the office, but not typically amongst one another, so I'm grateful for that. We actually pastor the church right here in Delaware, so we had to come a long way this morning. Uh, Journey Community Church, uh, just around the corner over there behind a McDonald's. So at the end of the session, I'll put up my contact information. So uh, we're always available, anyone, at the Network Resource Center. But you can feel free to call with any questions, comments. Um, We'll mention some additional resources and things. And uh, if if I can point you to anything, I'm glad to do that and help any way that I can. But before we get started, I just want to take a little survey. They probably did this in your last session, just to get an idea of um, what you hope to get out of this session today. Are there specific questions that you hope to have answered or specific situations you're looking for strategies for or or something along those lines? Does anyone have any particular thing you came in mind just like, mine might have been the only one open, but if there was something particular you came in today hoping to gain? Anyone? All right, that's great. I can't fail. So that's, (laughs) that's really good news for me. Um, I will uh, give you a bunch of information today, and again, if if there's anything else I can help you with, um, I'm glad to do that. So several months ago, I got a call at the network office, and uh, a man was upset with one of our churches. I won't say the church, in case you attend that church and you're in this room, and I won't say the man, in case you're the person who called the office. (laughs) We'll spare each other that awkwardness, but... A man called the office, and he is very angry with one of our churches. And in his mind, he didn't realize, and you may not either, but our general council churches are autonomous churches. So as long as they stick within the bylaws that that govern broadly, they're autonomous. So calling our office about your general council church really doesn't do anything except, you know, maybe somebody could show up and talk to the pastor. But um, So he called the office, and he's very angry, and he's very upset. And he tells me the lady was rude to him and he can't get to the lead pastor. And he was very angry. And so he told me he was going to switch to Buddhism. He was going to leave Christianity and he was going to become a Buddhist. And I said to him, you can switch to Buddhism, you know, if you want to. But just know that you're going to deal with the exact same stuff. Because although we get amongst ourselves and talk about how awful church people are, the truth of the matter is that people are awful. 
right? It's not a church problem. It's a people problem. And no matter what environment you go in, you're going to deal with the same type of issues with people. So hopefully today I can give you some strategies and and some ideas and some concepts that will uh, help you with those relationships that we deal with every day. Um, the, The bottom line is that we can't control people's behavior, right? I'm sure you've heard that before. You can't control what happens, you can control your attitude or you can control your response with it. That's what I tell my five-year-old, right? I tell him, you're getting in the bathtub one way or another. That's not the choice. The choice is whether you get in the bathtub and we don't have any trouble or whether mommy just picks you up and dunks you in the bathtub. That's the choice. And it's the same way with us. You're always going to encounter difficult people. It's a question of how you handle it. And even if just one person in a relationship is committed to make it better, it will better the relationship and it will better the outcome. So that's our goal. If just one person will make a choice to improve it, uh, we can make it better. So hopefully today we're going to be able to influence some situations when you walk out of here that seem like lemons being thrown at you and it will be your responsibility and hopefully your goal to turn those into some lemonade. Okay, before we uh, go any further, we're going to have a pop quiz. I'm like on a power trip, right? All through college, you're like dying to be on this side when you can say pop quiz. <laughs> so you have to uh, forgive my power trip. I'm kidding. It's, it's an easy thing. If you'll just pass those down. If there's any extra, we'll just collect them along the, the back there. And there should be because I have enough for both sessions. Yep. See, I can't fail, but you can. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to read a story. And after we read the story, we're going to look at the questions there on your paper, and we're going to answer them true, false, or question mark. Like, you can't know the answer, okay? You can refer to the story as often as you like. I'll leave it up here. It's also on your paper in case you prefer to look uh, closely. And I'll read it aloud for those of you that are auditory learners. This is for you. And uh, we'll take a minute and go through those questions and see how we do. A businessman had just turned off the lights in the store when a man appeared and demanded money. The owner opened a cash register. The contents of the cash register were scooped up, and the man sped away. A member of the police force was notified promptly. All right, question number one. A man appeared after the owner had turned off his store lights. Who says true? Raise your hand. Okay, who says false? Who says you cannot know? You cannot know. And here's why. Because the story does not state that the person who turned off the lights was the owner. Oh, now your brains are going, right? We were doing this in the office yesterday, and uh, the guy, then he's like reading and analyzing like every word. It was cracking me up. All right, so here we go. Number two. Question number two says the robber was a man. True? Who says true? Raise your hand. Now nobody's going to raise their hand, right? Okay, who says false? Okay, who says you cannot know? You can't know. 
Because the story does not state that the man who demanded money was a robber. robber. Okay, we don't know that the man who demanded money was the robber. Okay, number three. The man did not demand money. Who says true? Who says false? Who says you cannot know? And like 90% of you didn't raise your hand. You're cracking me up. All right, it's false, okay? Because it does say that a man demanded money. Okay, nothing, nothing fancy there. All right, question number four. The man who opened the cash register was the owner. Who says true? Who says false? Who says you cannot know? You cannot know. And here's why. And the class erupts into chaos. Here's why. Because the story does not state that the owner was a a man. Okay, number five. I gave you all copies of this so you can take home and torture people. Okay, so number five. The store owner scooped up the contents of the cash register and ran away. Who says true? Who says false? Who says you cannot know? You cannot know. That's right. Because the story says that someone opened a cash register. We don't know who. Or wait, I'm sorry. I skipped. I skipped. I'm sorry. The story does not eliminate the possibility that it was the owner who scooped up the contents of the cash register. Also, it does not state whether the man ran away or not. He may have sped away in a car or a motorcycle or... Okay, number six. Someone opened a cash register. Who says true? Woo! Okay, number seven. After the man who, uh, who demanded money scooped up the contents of the cash register, he ran away. Who says true? Who says false? Who says you cannot know? You cannot know. The story does not indicate definitely whether the man who demanded money was the same person who scooped it up. Okay, number eight. While the cash register contained money, the story does not say how much. Who says you cannot know? You cannot know, and here's why. Okay, now don't throw things at me. I'm going to go back here because this one's going to aggravate you. Okay. Because it doesn't say that it contained money. Maybe it contained checks or money orders, keys, and it actually says or marijuana on here. <laughs> okay, here we go. Number eight. Or number nine, sorry. What's that? Are you going to give us a copy of this? <laughs> yes. I will give you a copy of this if you want one. Just make sure you get in touch with me after and I'll scan it and send it to you. Okay, number nine, or you can take a picture with your phone or whatever. I'll leave it up here in the front. Okay, number nine, the robber demanded money of the owner. True? False? You cannot know, right? Because the story doesn't say that the man who demanded money was a robber. We kind of touched that one already. Okay, and the last one, the story contains a series of events in which only three persons are referred to. The owner of the store, a man who demanded money, and a member of the police force who says you cannot know. You can't know. Why can't you know? And because the owner and the businessman may not have been the same person. 
They may have been, but they may not have been. All right. Did anybody get, like, half of them right? All right, right here, Kelly in the middle. All right, it's kind of interesting, huh? When we see quizzes like this and things like this, what we do is we hear a story or we hear a situation, and what do we do in our minds when we hear it? You picture it, right? And you fill in the blanks. It's what your brain was designed to do. It's why when you read a novel or a really interesting book, you can see that in your mind. It's what your brain does. The unfortunate thing about that is that in relationships and conflicts, our brains do that too. They paint pictures of the circumstances leading up to it. They paint pictures of what that person is thinking and feeling. And those false assumptions get us in trouble when it comes to conflict and when it comes to dealing with one another. So this morning, I want to give you three strategies, three things you can do that will help you not make these types of false assumptions in, uh, in your relationships with other people. It helps me to not make these assumptions in my relationships with other people. The first one is to develop empathy, to develop empathy. And this is probably one of the most important things when it comes to dealing with people. It's one of the most important things when it comes to even your closest relationships is being able to develop a sense of empathy. Empathy is simply defined as identifying the feelings, thoughts, and attitudes of another person. So it's basically being able to put yourself in their shoes. We call that empathy. We all hope that our kids have empathy, right? It's a huge part of caring about other people. It's simply being able to see something from someone else's point of view. But perception is a tricky thing, and it's highly relative. And I'm going to give you an example of that with this next picture. I'm just really going to mess with your minds today, just so you know. Okay. Which shade of gray is darker, the top or the bottom? Would you believe me if I told you that they are the same shade of gray? Okay. I'm going to have to collect these back from you, but again, I can send this to you, or you can just Google it. It's, on, it's online. Okay. And we'll show you here that these are the same shade of gray. This down. I may have shorted the style a little bit. We'll see when we get to the end. Can I borrow yours for just one second, Sue? Thank you. Okay, once you get your picture, take your hand and cover the middle. If you take your hand and you cover the middle, you'll see that they're the same shade of gray. Isn't that weird? Okay, why does your brain think the top one is darker? What's that? Because it's darker. Yes, it's darker around the edges. And even when you cover the middle, your brain's going to trick you a little bit because it's darker around the sides. All around the edges are a little bit darker on the top. And the bottom is a little bit lighter. Now, you'll even get a clearer picture if you Google it because the digital picture, the, the printing is a little more challenging to get the, the gradients just right. But if you pull it up on your computer or your phone, you'll really see. Okay, the same shade of gray. 
Has anybody ever watched the show Brain Games? Doesn't that make you like doubt anything that your mind sees or perceives? Okay. So does the possibility exist in our relationships that two people could be experiencing the same moment in time and see it from two totally different perspectives? Absolutely. It happens all the time. And it's the reason that sometimes you encounter a person and you think they're being incredibly difficult. And guess what they're thinking about you? (laughs) That you are being incredibly difficult. Okay? So our goal is to develop empathy, to be able to take ourselves and to try to see it from somebody else's point of view. It's an exercise and a practice that will help us in dealing with difficult people. Let's look at some of our tendencies in perception. These are some of the things that we as people tend to do when it comes to perceiving something. The first thing is that we judge ourselves more charitably than we do others. I have all kinds of grace for myself if I want to lay on the couch all day long and eat bad food and watch TV. Okay? All kinds of grace for myself. If I hear somebody else is doing that, I start criticizing them for wasting time. How can you just lay on the couch? Don't you have things you need to get done? You're lazy. But we always give ourselves more grace and charity than we do other people. Okay, the second one is that we judge ourselves by our motives and others by our actions. Right? And the reason we can't help to do that is because we don't know their motives. All we have to judge is their actions unless they tell us. Okay, so it's very easy to say, I'm laying on the couch all day because I worked really hard and I'm tired and I deserve a break today. I'm going to judge myself by my motives and others by their actions. The third thing is that we cling to first impressions. So that person that approaches you and is incredibly difficult in your very first encounter Every time they approach you is going to be in your mind that they are a difficult person because we cling to that first moment we meet people. The fourth thing we do is we assume that others think like us. We assume that they're processing information the same way that we are with the same experiences and the same filters. And the fifth thing, and I can say this because I am of the gender, is that We favor negative impressions, especially women, okay? Not all women, but there's a reason that Lifetime is like the channel for women, right? My husband calls that like the the man-hating, wife-beating, whatever channel, right? And we women, we just love that drama. So it's just like, you know, we cling to that negative stuff. And and, but it is just human nature, right? We don't want to hear all the good stuff. We want to hear that big, juicy piece of gossip, Right? That thing that's just depressing and terrible. For whatever reason, we cling to negativity and to negative impressions. So what we have to do in our dealings with one another is recognize when we're doing these things and back ourselves off. The first step in diffusing a tense situation is to develop a sense of empathy. Have you guys ever complained about someone or gone on and on about how terrible they are and then somebody tells you the terrible things they've been through and you feel awful, right? Empathy will help us save, will save us from that. To focus on empathy is to focus on the person themselves and not just the behavior they're displaying. We've got to get past that difficult behavior. Don't worry, the last point today is going to give you permission to just like slap him in the face, okay? <laughs> so, 
All right, the second thing that we need to do is to guard our responses. To guard our responses. My boss, Gary Fowler, we were, we were talking about this the other day in the office, and he made the comment um, from the series DNA of Relationships. With the, if you've never gone through that, that is a, just a tremendous series. It will help you so much in your relationships. But he made the comment that the third thing that he talks about in his list of three, and I can't remember all three, but is uh, he says that when you're in a moment, make sure you live that moment so that when you're retelling the story, you don't feel like humiliated about how you acted in it, right? And I just think that that is so genius, to live in the moment so that you can be pleased with yourself and with your behavior in the retelling of the story. The Bible is full of scriptures that talk about about. Um, guarding our responses. And here's just a few I pulled out very quickly. So I, if you want, there's like, you know, a really long list of scriptures that talk to us about how we can guard our responses and how important it is. But I'm just going to give you a few. Psalm 141.3. It says, Take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. My mom used to quote this scripture all the time. She used to just say, Lord, put a guard at my mouth. <laughs> and boy, don't we all need that. James 1.26 says, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. That's a tough one, right? Colossians 4.6 says, let your conversation, and these are all New Living Translation, just in case anybody's wondering. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Isn't that awesome? To have the right response for everyone. Proverbs 12:18 says some people make cutting remarks but the words of the wise bring healing. The words of the wise bring healing. And probably the most well-known and most often quoted is that a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. And isn't that the truth? If you look at these scriptures and many others in the Bible that talk about this particular thing, most of them pertain to self-control. They pertain to self-control, which happens to be a fruit of the Spirit and a very important one, self-control. You know what the difference is between like, well, I say this, but most of the time, the difference between like my five-year-old and like the adults in my family, again, most of the time, is that maturity comes with self-control. The more mature person you are is the more you learn to rein your emotions in. If I'm in the store and I don't get the sale that I want, I don't lay in the floor and kick and scream and roll around. Okay, maybe once. But most of the time, I don't lay in the floor and roll around and kick and scream and have a fit. If I did, you would think I'm ridiculous, right? Because you expect more of me because I should be more mature. If my five-year-old does it, every parent in the store goes, we're so sorry we've been there, (laughs) right? Because you expect it of the immature. The fruit of the Spirit, self-control, is a fruit that grows over time as we mature in the Lord. It's an important fruit, and it helps us to guard our responses with one another. I wanted to put this... uh, this phrase up here, because I think this is so important, because we live in a culture that talks a lot about being real, right? And sometimes that realness is used as an excuse to say whatever we feel like. 
So what I want to point out is that having self-control and guarding our response is not lacking sincerity. That's not what it's about. It's not about, well, I should just be able to say whatever I want because it's how I'm feeling and thinking and I shouldn't have to put any guard. There is nothing in the Bible that says that you don't have to guard yourself. The Bible talks about self-control. It's not letting people run all over us. That's the other thing we think. If somebody's coming at us and we don't just double up our fist and let them have it, then we're letting them walk all over us. That's not what it is. This is what it is. It's about surrendering surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit and not to our own natural reactions. The Holy Spirit gives us supernatural power. So what I'm unable to do in my natural self, guard my responses, measure my words, maintain self-control, I can do through the supernatural ability of the Holy Spirit. We need to guard our responses. Guard our responses. Now, when we talk about guarding responses... We're not just talking about verbal cues. We're also talking about nonverbal cues. So we're going to spend just a moment talking about nonverbals. Now, I want to clarify something because a lot of people think that verbal communication is like your tone of voice and your pitch and things like that. Those are nonverbal. Verbal communication is simply the words. Anything else on the words is a nonverbal communication. Okay, I just want to make that distinction so you don't get confused as I'm talking about these things. So verbal communication would be things like tone, pitch, body language is in there as well. Um, things like rolling eyes, um, all of those things, right, are nonverbal communications. Now, most of you probably know, and I've heard statistics from like, 80 to 98 percent, so who knows, right? I mean, how do you measure such a thing? But the bottom line is I think we could all agree that the majority of what we communicate is nonverbal, right? Our words are not near as important. I'll give you an example. If you're a parent and you tell your kid to do something and they say, okay, the nonverbals is what matters, right? Because they can say, okay, or they can say, okay, Right? One of you just wants, I'm sorry, and want to give them a hug, and the other one makes you just want to let them have it, right? The nonverbals matter tremendously. Nothing irritates me more, and I'm guilty of it, so I, I know it irritates my husband too, but it's so irritating when someone says, well, that's not what I said. It is absolutely what you said, with every other fiber of your being than the words themselves, Right? So my husband and I use the phrase all the time whenever someone will say something and and they'll just say the words and I'll look at him and I'll say what they meant was to put a stupid on the end of that phrase because they said it in such a way what they were really doing was calling an idiot. So nonverbals matter, okay? So what we have to be careful of is typically when people are upset, let's say someone is angry, what happens to the voice typically when someone is angry? It raises, right? The, the, the funniest thing between me and my husband is I can be a little demonstrative. Shock, but I can be a little demonstrative. And, and whenever I get upset, I just get loud. And he'll say, why are you yelling at me? And I say, I'm not yelling at you! <laughs> right? It's just because I have this emotion, okay? So the voice gets louder. It usually gets a little higher pitched, too, right? It gets a little higher. goes up an octave there. And um, sometimes it often gets a little faster, too, OK? 
okay, because the adrenaline. What about when someone is sad? What happens to the voice? It goes a little lower, right? Typically a little slower when someone is sad. Okay, so what we have to be careful of in moments of conflict, and if, if somebody, let's say someone calls the church and they're going off on you, what you have to be careful of is not mirroring. Okay, because our tendency is if someone comes at us a certain way, our defense kicks in, and we want to make sure that we're standing up to what they're, what they're dishing out. Okay, so what you have to try to practice is to not mirror it, but to counter it. So if somebody comes at you very strong, their voice is loud, and they're being very aggressive, what, if you're aggressive back, what's going to happen in the situation? It's going to escalate, right? And we've all been there and we've all seen it. But what happens is if I went around this room and said, how should you respond if somebody comes at you angry? I bet most of you would say you stay calm and you level your tone of voice. It's not that we don't know what to do. The problem is our emotions kick in, okay? So it's like anything else. You have to practice. You have to visualize in your mind when someone comes at me like this, this is my response. Until that becomes the natural way that you deal with something. Okay? You have to be careful not to mirror that emotion. Now, when I'm talking about coming at them pleasantly, let me show you what I don't mean. I ran across this quote and it made me laugh on my desk. It's a smile. It will either warm their heart or tick them off. Either way, you win. (laughs) Let me just clarify that this is not what I'm talking about. Okay? And the reason I want to clarify is because what is in your heart and the motive of your heart is going to seep out in your communication. So you can say... It's like we always joke when my husband and I lived in Pensacola for four years and we used to joke about how Southerners can just like chew you out and they end it with like bless your little heart and then <laughs> everything's supposed to be fine and you feel like you just got like ripped apart, right? So this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a genuine place inside of you that cares about that person. It goes back to empathy and cares about that situation and wants to see to resolution. Let me tell you some of the enemies of conflict. Sarcasm is a huge one. It's a huge one. People get very angry when someone treats them sarcastically, especially if they're already upset. And this is when I get to speak to the men, because men can be really bad for this, okay? They like to do that little patronizing thing to their wives, you know, that kind of thing. Sarcasm is an enemy. It's an enemy. It will infuse, not defuse. Eye-rolling, Anyone who has a teenager gets that, right? They don't have to say a word. They roll their eyes and you want to like fly in the back seat, okay? (laughs) Sighing is another one. When people do that deep inhale and deep exhale and you're like, are you trying not to kill me or what's going on here, okay? These are things that infuse and the goal needs to be to defuse. But I will tell you this, that the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that is absolutely true. If you can deal on the inside, the outside will reflect. It will reflect your love and that you care about other people. So how do we deal with sour people? We develop empathy. We guard our responses. And the third one, and when I said slap him in the face, that was like metaphor, okay? Just so everybody knows. Metaphor. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The third one is what I like to call call the foul. 
to call the foul. This one thing right here I ran into a few years ago, and it changed so much for me. It had a huge impact in my relationships. It came from Bill Hybels. In one of his books, he was talking about his relationship with his staff. And he was saying that on their staff, they have a rule, and it's that no fouls. Fouls are not permitted. So what is a foul? I've taken it to say that it's an unfair, unreasonable, or disrespectful comment or attitude, fouling somebody. We do it in very simple ways when we say, you always blah, 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 or you never blah, 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 blah. Okay? Those are fouls. We do it with our, our tone of voice and, and with um, being aggressive with one another. We can foul each other verbally and we can foul each other non-verbally. Sometimes it's just our words and sometimes it's the way that our words are expressed. When I worked at Job and Family Services, and you want to talk about learning conflict revolution, go work for the government for a while. When I worked at, at Job and Family Services, uh, we had to deal with, with a lot of different clients, and they're already in very stressful situations in their life. You're talking about poverty. You're talking about abuse, addiction. So stressors are already very high. And I remember one time uh, we, we used to take turns, the, the social workers, we would take turns and we would um, have to work what they called the help desk, and everybody hated that day because that's just when people could walk off the street and just come in, you know. And... Um, I remember one lady came in, and she was very angry and very upset. She felt like she was getting the runaround. Oh, thank you. She felt like she was getting the runaround with a government agency. And so <laughs> I empathized, like, instantly. That wasn't a problem. But she, she was so angry and so frustrated, and I was trying every trick I knew, and I was just, you know, I was trying to stay calm. I was trying to stay kind of monotone, and she's actually physically starting to get in my face. And so she's kind of coming at me, and I'm not a very big person, so it's not really hard to overpower me. And um, and I kept trying to defuse and to calm the situation, and finally I had enough. And I put up my hand like this, and I said, I am trying to help you. I need you to stop yelling at me so we can focus on the problem. And she instantly calmed down. And she actually started to cry, and she said, I'm sorry, I know you're trying to help me. I'm just so frustrated, and I'm just so upset. That's an example of calling the foul, because I was trying to help her and defuse that situation, and she was fouling me in every way possible. She was yelling at me. She was pushing on me. Uh, my husband and I have an agreement that in our marriage, we can call the foul. The other day, I'm going to tell on myself here, the other day, I used to call my husband Piddle Pete. Because it used to take like 20 years to get out the front door, you know. <laughs> it was like he would have to go do this and, oh, let me grab a piece of toast. Oh, wait, I forgot my wallet. Let me get my keys. And I'm just like, if we don't get the car, I'm going to die. <laughs> and so I used to call him Piddle Pete, and then he got really sick of that. So I didn't do it anymore. Well, we have a five-year-old, and now I call him Piddle Pete. Because at the last minute, where is my shoes? And, Mommy, my shoe, it won't buckle. And it's like, I just want to get out the door. So the other day, I was so frustrated. And I walked down the hallway, and I said, God, why did you have to give me two of them? <laughs> That's what I said. And my husband, very calmly, he was standing in the kitchen, and he said, when you're not mad later, you're going to be sorry you said that. And he was right. That's an example of calling the foul. I fouled my family, and they called me on it. Okay? We have a right to call the foul. When people are attacking us, we have a right to say, hold on, I want to help you. The key is, is that we have to do it in love. 
not in a way with sarcasm, not with hostility, not with anger. We have to do it in a way that demonstrates the love of Christ and says to them, I I want to diffuse the situation so that I can help you. That's my goal, to love you and to help you. One of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. My husband said, like any young people aren't going to know that movie. But how many of you have seen Apollo 13? Okay. My favorite scene is when the astronauts are stranded and they're trying to... That's the whole movie, right? But when the astronauts are stranded and, and they're in, like, the workroom and they're trying to build, you know, whatever they build to get the carbon monoxide out or whatever, dioxide. And um, everybody, like, goes into this chaos. And the, the one guy who's kind of the leader, he goes into the room and he quiets everybody and he says, work the problem, people. I just love that scene because it's so true, right? You'd be in all this chaos and somebody just needs to stand up and say, let's work the problem, people. And when we're in these moments of conflict, we can't focus on what the person is doing and the behavior they're displaying. We have to work the problem. Work the problem. Start breaking it down. I told you that story earlier about the man I was on the phone with. And when we got off the phone, he decided he was going to stay a Christian. And he was, he was going to forgive the church and, um, and all these things. And, and it was because I was working the problem with him. I was working the problem with him. We don't just respond. We work the problem. Now, when people are upset, they, we've, we've kind of focused on nonverbal approaches. But I'm going to give you some verbal things we see that can be fouls. These are some verbal things that can be fouls. The first one is an overgeneralization. When people are upset, they overgeneralize. And that's when we get things like, you always ignore me when I'm talking. Or, you never pay attention to me. Okay? An overgeneralization. We see that a lot when people are upset. It's something you can call. You can say, that's, that's not true. I may not do it often enough, but it's not that I never do it, right? But you don't say it the way I said it, like, never. Okay. okay, the second one is a false analogy, comparing things that aren't alike. People reach for this a lot. You want a really interesting activity, go online and download a speech like from a crazy dictator like Hitler or Mussolini or somebody and walk through it and look for these things. It's amazing how people use these things to try to persuade and to try to pull people in a particular direction. And having these kind of in your your pockets will, will help you look for these things and help you call these verbal fouls. The other one is a false dilemma. We all do this. We make it seem like it's either that choice or that choice. So you're either going to do this or you're going to do that, period. Okay? When oftentimes there are multiple, there are many options. But by making people think there's only two, trying to force you in one direction. The other one is called a red herring. It's diverting attention to another topic or subject. People will typically do this if you're kind of trying to help them work through a particular conflict or particular difficult situation. And when you start getting close to the real problem, they'll do this a lot. Okay? They'll do this a lot. Then, then it goes over here. Well, I really was not at that. I was really talking about this. Okay? And they try to move it. The fifth one is a post hoc. It's just assuming that one thing caused another thing. Okay? That's just, just making an assumption that it's because of this that this is happening. When it's not necessarily true, just because two things are closely related doesn't mean that one caused the other. The last one is an odd misericordium. If anyone's ever taken argumentation and persuasion, you probably got this list and then some others. And this is trying to make someone feel sorry for you. This is another one of those that when you really start getting to the heart of a conflict, 
especially if that person has something they need to deal with, you get this a lot. Then they start appealing to your sympathy and why you should feel. When I was a social worker, this was the thing I saw the most. It was all of a sudden when I would really get to the heart of the problem, all of a sudden I got the whole thing about, you know, all the abuse and things that they've dealt with in their lives. And not that some of that can't be good, but we have to be careful that it doesn't divert from the thing that you're trying to resolve or the thing that you're trying to deal with. Our goal is to recognize the foul, speak the truth in love, and to work the problem. We'll never eliminate conflict in our lives. We're never going to eliminate all the difficult people as much as we would like to sometimes. So it really boils down to managing that thing, to managing that thing. Developing empathy, guarding our responses, and calling the foul. I'm just going to leave that up there in case anyone needs it. Okay, I want to go ahead and open up just for a time of, uh, of Q&A just to see if there's any particular situations or any particular uh, thing anyone would like to talk about, any questions, anything I can help you with. If you'd just like to share a story, uh, sometimes just hearing how somebody handled a particular thing or is dealing with a particular thing, sometimes that can help other people as well. Um, right here. How do you, I mean, times have changed. Yeah, one thing I wish I had brought with me, I probably have it in my bag over here, is um, kind of channels of communication. And what you're talking about is absolutely right. Um, we are in a generation where we do a lot of texting and a lot of Facebook, and these are really low forms of communication. The best form of communication is obviously face-to-face. -face. Second to that would probably be the phone. Um, underneath that would probably be uh, email, because at least you can say a little more, be a little more thorough. Um, and then we get into social media and texting. The thing I would say is that if you see that stuff in social media, um, what I would personally do is I would take it to that person face-to-face. -face. Um, I would not respond online. That's my personal preference and my personal advice. Um, and the reason for that is what are we missing in online communication and in verbal communication? What are we missing that's so – and emails and stuff. What are we missing? Yeah, emotions. We're missing the nonverbals. And we already discussed how such a large percentage of communication happens in the nonverbal context. And that's why if you're dealing with a conflict, I would never recommend doing that via email. Now, I've heard people say to me, well, I do it via email because I want something in right. writing. Okay? So what's the workaround for that? What would someone recommend? Because it's valid, right, to how you want something in writing sometimes. Okay, I'll give you my workaround. I talk to them first, and then I send them a follow-up email. And I say, I just want to recapture the things that we talked about. And I send it via email. Okay? I will say that we do have an epidemic right now, uh, especially among our young people, with online bullying and all of these things that are happening. And I wish that I could say that this would be the magical answer. The only thing I could say is that we have to confront it. We have to call the foul. And we have to say, you know, no. And we're not going to be able to control people. We're not going to be able to control what they say. I can tell you that even in our office, we've had people put things on our page. And, and uh, we've had to call and say, you know, that you just fouled us. You fouled the Lord. 
and we've asked them to go take it off. And most of the time, you know, people have responded um, appropriately, not always. Anyone have anything they'd like to comment about that or respond to that in some way? Yeah. I think a lot of the reason they do it is because they're being a coward. They don't have to face somebody, and mm-hmm. they can put out there and say what they want to say. You're absolutely right, because when you put things out there, um, there's there's no real forum for someone like to confront you instantly. So I agree with you. It, it's a coward's way. And, and I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to step on some toes, but sometimes email is a coward's way of dealing with conflict. We want to send an email because we don't want to have to confront that person face-to-face. But remember those channels, and I can actually send... Um, I can actually send those to anyone who wants them, but it's just a list, and you could probably Google it and find it, but it'll show you the different uh, communication channels and how it goes down dramatically the further you get away from just that face-to-face communication. I absolutely agree with you. It is a coward's way of handling things. It's kind of, kind of like when you own a, own a company, you'd be helping people for a year and be in a great job, but one person and say how horrible you are, and it goes to one other person, and then you got a bad reputation. Now you got Facebook and do, do it a hundred times in one, yes. one thing now, and that can hurt a church a lot. Yes, it absolutely can, and we see it all the time. We see it all the time. And I'll tell you, I, I would like to say that things have gotten a ton worse since uh, online communication, but I can remember as a child, we were involved in a church split, and there, you know, we didn't have the Internet or any of that. I'm dating myself a little but Internet came out when I was in college, and I remember, um, you know, those same types of things. It's just people did it in home meetings back then. They'd gather everybody together and talk terrible about the pastor, right? <laughs> I mean, it's people find a way, and, and spiteful people, you know, they do. They find a way. They find a way. There's an excellent book called I've Got Your Back, and it's by James Galvin, G-A-L-V-I-N. Awesome. Did everybody get that? I got your back. Well, what was the name again? James Galvin. James Galvin. Yes. There's also a website. I want to say it's Peacemakers. Anybody familiar with that enough to confirm what I'm saying? I think it's Peacemakers. Uh, peacemakers.com, uh, something along those lines. There are tons of resources on there about conflict management. I mean, there's it's, it's like one of those websites that you first get overwhelmed because you're not sure how to navigate. But it's a great place just to go and start kind of combing through and looking for various um, resources and teachings and things like that. It is a wealth of information. Yeah. No, OSOM does have a conflict management class. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Who teaches it? You know? Well, yes, they do. So, any other stories, comments, questions? Yeah, in the back. What kind of tips or secrets that you have when you're dealing with a highly emotional, tense situation? How do you, how do you um, kind of gather yourself to get a tactful, loving response to this person? Uh, like you said, the natural inclination is to, to mirror them mm-hmm. in actions and words. So what's your recommendation on that? Obviously, and I guess it depends on if it's an initial thing or an ongoing thing. So let, let's take it as though it's an ongoing person that you're dealing with, and then we'll, we'll go back to the other um, that's a great question because the people just carry baggage with them, right? We all do. We come into relationships with a lot of stuff. 
And uh, it's hard to say what those emotional triggers are, but I would say a couple things. Number one, and I know this sounds cliche, but I would absolutely be bathing that situation in prayer. Because the Lord can cut through things and deal with the heart in ways that no matter what strategies we use, I've experienced it personally. I've been in relationships that have felt toxic to me, and I wasn't sure how to deal with that or how to handle that, and just prayer, and it has resolved itself. So um, I will say that first and foremost. The second thing I would say is that I would... um, I guess it depends. If, if it's a man dealing with a woman, I would always have another person with you. I, w- I would say that as well, that it's good to have somebody. Um, and I can tell you that um, there are people that are licensed counselors. I personally have experienced people that just flat out have a gift for counseling. <laughs> like they, they have the ability to look at a situation and to bring wisdom and, and um, confidence to that situation. Those people just have a gift for that. And uh, I typically will have someone like that around too, uh, especially if it looks like that emotion is coming from a really dangerous and unhealthy place. Um, so those would be my, my few things. Uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, patience and time. And I would also say that at some point, if, it, if it's an ongoing relationship and this is something that's pulling you down and something that dealing with on an ongoing basis doesn't feel healthy, um, then I would sever ties if, if I felt like every time I was dealing with someone it was becoming an unhealthy situation. Um, and I would probably point them to someone else. You know, I've kind of taken you as far as I can, or we've been dealing with this situation for so long, I feel like it's going to be better for you, you know, to get a different point of view or a different perspective. I've had to do that before um, when you have people that they just start pulling on you all the time, and every time you're with them, you leave, and you feel like you need an emotional bath, you know, just from all the, the stuff they've thrown up on you. And so those would be my, my few things. Does anyone have anything else? What, what would you guys add to that? Listen to your spouse. Yes, listen to your spouse. I'll, I'll tell you an example of this. My my husband, there was a uh, there there was a, a man in in our church, and my husband kept telling me that man is flirting with you, and I kept saying, "Oh, he's just being funny, or he's just you know we're just friends." And I just kept making light of it until it really got awkward. And then I was like, wow, I should have listened to my spouse. And because sometimes your spouse can see something in an interaction and in a, in a difficult situation that you can't see yourself. So that's absolutely great advice. But what do you do if you're single? If you're single, I would say a good friend or your pastor. Like you, you need people in your life, whether you're single or not, that, that have you know, a good point of view of your life and your relationships. But I am grateful for, for a spouse. It does help. So, anything else? Anybody like to share? Yeah. Uh, say, especially in the aspect of a, um, of a significant other, like um, trying to address a certain problem, like, um, like when you're trying to address a problem, like what we talked about, them always trying to, like, well, sometimes I'm not, I don't always feel like I'm being, like I have her attention. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I do, it seems like she either cuts me off or kind of diverts the topic to something random that has nothing to do with what we were talking about, like how mm-hmm. we address something like that. Yeah, and we all, we all do that when things get a little uncomfortable, right? We try to, to turn it another way. 
Um, I would say a few things. I would say, number one, that when you're in any kind of a conflict, not everybody in that conflict or that difficult situation wants resolution. Okay? So if you're in a situation and you're dealing with a difficult person, particularly in an ongoing situation um, where it's every time you're with them, you know, there's difficulty, both people have to be committed to that having resolution or you're just wasting your time. If, if, if not, then what you're going to do is just diffuse it and you're going to move on, and then you diffuse it and then you're going to move on, but you're never really going to make progress. You're never really going to deal with that core issue. So I would say I think that has to be the question is, do you want to resolve this? We keep having this problem. We keep having this discussion. If we want to resolve it, we're going to have to go a little deeper. If you don't want to resolve it, then maybe we just need to part ways. Yeah, right? Because both people have to be committed. I, I have felt so sorry for friends of mine who have talked to me about like their marriage relationship or a relationship with a sibling or a parent. And, and they'll tell me like every time I talk to them, it's the same stuff over and over and over. And unfortunately, it's a little more difficult with family, right? Because what are you going to do? <laughs> but uh, it's like the same thing over and over and over because that person's the only one that's committed to getting beyond that conflict. And we deal with those people in our church all the time, don't we? <laughs> the, the people that always come with the same issue and the same trouble. And that if that person's not willing to get on the other side of it, then the only, the only power you have um, outside of just prayer and letting the Lord work in it is just to try to keep it diffused as much as you possibly can if they're not willing to confront that particular thing. Just try to keep it from causing as much harm as it can. Yeah? another person in, like a neutral person, that they can kind of listen to both sides and say, no, wait a minute. And they can rein feelings in and say, no, wait, you know, you need to Mm -hmm. slow down and listen to this person. Yes. You know, just have that extra person Mm -hmm. to just kind of help the conversation go so that your feelings don't get in the way and over and... Yes. Because they can help you, right? They can help see things that you can't necessarily see. Yeah, and, yes. and, and make them realize that, well, this really is an issue for this person. You might not think that it's an issue. Yes. But for them, it is. Especially so, in relationships you really care about, right. right? Ones that really matter. Like, I want us to be friends. I want us yeah. to be able to work together, right? Yeah. yeah. And, but sometimes they're just so blinded, they're just hectic, and, and they don't see the issue. Yes, it. it's true. Or, and sometimes we're blind, Right? Sometimes we can't see, and we need someone else to point out to us what's happening. Like when I'm frustrated and my voice is like yelling, I honestly don't think I'm yelling. If my husband mirrored it, I would be like, why are you yelling at me? <laughs> right? But I, don't, I can't see it. All, all I'm doing is responding in my emotion. And so we've just gotten in the habit where he'll say, why are you yelling? Why are you yelling? You know, uh, just calling that foul. So, All right, let me check the time here. I think we are right at the end. Well, thank you guys so much for for coming in.